I am a big fan of short books. I like to read short books. I like to give away short books. I personally appreciate very much when an author can write a mercifully short book that is both clear and compelling. It's probably motivated in part by how slow of a reader I am, but I think most of you would agree that a short book is often a good book. There is beauty in brevity. For some reason, though, when we get to short books of the Bible, they are often neglected. They often get put on the back burner. This is why a little while ago, uh, Josiah has been taking us through a series. I've been calling it, I don't know if anyone else has been calling it, uh, one book or one chapter wonders. It's like one hit wonders. It's like the one chapter wonders. He's taken us through Philemon and he's taken us through Jude. And we're working through these short books that are often neglected. I think in part because they're short. And we could probably answer that ourselves. As we look at some of the short books in the Bible, if we look at 2 John, could we articulate what's the message of 2 John? What about 3 John? What's the difference between 2 and 3 John? What about the minor prophets? We've been talking about the minor prophets recently. Dan has taken us through a short book, but it's like the 25th shortest book in the Bible. It's not even that short. Uh, Joel. But the minor prophets often we forget about. We kind of treat them as, you know when you're learning the alphabet and L-M-N-O-P becomes one letter? L-M-N-O-P is just sort of like that block in the middle. The minor prophets are kind of like that for me. When I was learning the books of the Bible, I'd be like, now it's much longer than L-M-N-O-P, but I'd be like, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Hapatuk, Zephaniah, Hegeah, Zechariah, Malachi. I would just like rattle through and I wouldn't know really what they were. And it isn't until I start saying them individually like Nahum, Nahum, Nahum. Nahum, how do you say it? I don't think about it because it's part of this block, the book of the 12. And we neglect them to our shame because there are treasures in it. And so this morning, I want to take us through the shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. Now, the minor prophets we call minor, not because they're unimportant, but because they are short. Obadiah is the shortest minor prophet, and so it is the minorest prophet that we have. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, but it's a good one. It's likely that a lot of us here wouldn't do a great job of articulating what is Obadiah about. And even if we could answer that question, it would be hard to answer, why does it matter? I hope that changes today. I have this post-it note next to my desk that has three questions that are made up of only five words that are a good reminder for me as I'm studying God's word, as I'm preparing to preach, and I hope these uh, stick with you as well. You've maybe heard them before. The the three questions are what, so what, and now what? Okay, what, so what, and now what? As in, what does the text say? Why does it matter? And what am I supposed to do? I've thought before, we have signs as you leave the parking lot says, see you next Sunday, which is great. I think that's a great thing. But it almost would be good to have what, so what, now what. As we're leaving on Sunday mornings, we're leaving from this place asking those questions. What, what does the text say? Why does it matter? And what am I supposed to do about it? Well, I would love if everybody here after this morning could come away answering those questions about Obadiah. What, so what, and now what? Obadiah can be a tricky book, but I think you'll be surprised how pointed and clear the minorist prophet is. Now, if you were asked what Obadiah was about, or maybe you read it this week in preparation for this morning, and you answered with pride, I would say gold star. That is a good summary of the book of Obadiah, pride. It's a great start. The central message of Obadiah is 
uh, looking at the perils of pride. Now, kids, when I say pride, the, what I'm thinking of or how I'm kind of explaining it, the way I'm imagining it, is thinking way too much or way too highly of ourselves. Thinking way too much or way too highly of ourselves. In the book of Obadiah, we see that this book, this prophecy, is addressed to a nation called Edom. And it highlights how prideful they are. They trust in things that they think are going to give them all they need, but they fail to trust in God. They need to learn the lesson that real security is not found inside yourself. It's not uh, found in what you have. It is found in God alone. And so the big idea from Obadiah is this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That may sound familiar from another book of the Bible, but God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, would you turn in your Bibles to Obadiah? Again, I've emphasized very clearly at this point, it is a short book, and so it is a bit tricky to find. If you found Joel the last three weeks, just keep going to the right a couple more pages and you'll find it. Uh, if you are new to the Bible and you get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just backtrack a couple books and you'll get to Obadiah. No shame in using the table of contents this morning or any morning. Once you've found Obadiah, would you stand with me as I read God's holy and true word for us today? And when I finish reading, I'm going to say this is God's word. And if you believe that to be true, would you join me in saying out loud, thanks be to God. Now, standing and saying these things is not some magical incantation that, that makes this more special than it is, but it does communicate something to ourselves and to those around us that this is God's holy and true word for us today. So let's hear God's word from Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from Yahweh, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares Yahweh. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares Yahweh, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carry out his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother uh, 
the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor in the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken. Those in the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are at Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. It's a short book, but there's a lot going on. What we see in this short book is the condemnation against Edom. A good place for us to start, sort of the uh, intro after the intro as we go here, is asking a really good question. Who is Edom? Who are the Edomites? Well, it all starts with the tale of two brothers, twins. And we know of uh, Abraham as a central figure in the Old Testament, a central figure through the Bible. If you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know that God made a promise to him that he would be the father of many nations. And God demonstrated his faithfulness to Abraham that even in his old age, he was given a son. And that son's name was Isaac. Now Isaac eventually had two sons, twin boys, who battled from the beginning. They were twins. They were in the, the same womb fighting with one another. There was two, these two brothers. Esau was the older, hairier, red, outdoorsy one. And Jacob was the younger, indoorsman. A bit of a trickster and a mama's boy set up for a great story but like many brothers they had difficulties and there were significant events in their lives that set the stage for their whole lives and set the stage for uh, nations clashing for centuries even up to this point as we read in Obadiah and these events between Jacob and Esau are largely captured in Jacob again being a bit of a trickster uh, being a bit of a conniver and uh, fooling his foolish older brother so first, uh, he convinces Esau to sell his birthright for some bread and some red stew. This is a bad deal, period. But this is not a story that paints either brother in a good light. Again, Jacob is this conniving trickster uh, who, who is who's just manipulative the way he's, he's operating and working. And Esau is dismissive of the privilege it is to be a firstborn son. Firstborn son of a family that God has made big promises to. So... It's this story that Esau gets the nickname Edom because it sounds like red in Hebrew. 
Later, Jacob, with the help of his mom, they uh, trick his old blind father into blessing him instead of Esau, blessing him uh, as the firstborn son. And this causes a massive rift between the brothers. And obviously Jacob is afraid. He takes off. He's fearing for his life. Esau makes it pretty clear that if he can, he's going to kill him. And so these brothers split. Now they later do reconcile, but this divide becomes the beginning of two nations, two different peoples, one being Israel, this is what God eventually renames Jacob, and one being Edom, again, the red brother, he's a big fan of red stew. Now when reading through the Old Testament, it feels like we, we bump into Edom a lot, if you've noticed that. They're either about to fight, fighting, or they've just fought. It seems like that is a pattern that just keeps happening throughout the whole Old Testament. There's constant conflict between them. They're not letting each other into their lands. One takes the other over. The other gets their freedom. Then they take them over again, and then they try, and then they make allegiances with someone. It's just this, this constant cycle between these nations. And this pattern emerges of them fighting for control. And this pattern continues to what we see here in the book of Obadiah. And as we read Obadiah, we're helped understanding even just a little bit of that historical context because we see interchanged words. We see Esau and Edom. We see Jacob and Israel. We see other names, places like Teman, which is a synonym for Edom. And this all helps us understand that, that the, what Obadiah is addressing here, what the Lord is addressing through the prophet Obadiah, is not a one-time event. Now, there are specific events that are seen, which we'll talk about. But this is addressing a nation that at this point has set themselves against God and against God's people. And this is the pride that we see exposed in the text. It sets up how we see God oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. And so the first place we see that is within the first few verses. That pride is exposed in what we trust. Pride is exposed in what we trust. Look at verse 3. It sets the stage for the futility of trusting in anything other than God. And this is God speaking to Edom. Verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Edom's trust was grounded in their geography. It says that they lived in clefts in the rock, in lofty dwellings. And this is the geography of Edom. They're hard to attack. They had a good location. Location is everything, and they had it. They were protected. And you may be familiar with, uh, if you want to picture the, the geography, you may be familiar with Petra, not the band. The, uh, yeah, Google it, Petra. It looks cool. But it, it happened, uh, Petra wasn't built yet at the time of Obadiah. But that was the, the, the geography that they lived in, these high places that were safe. They felt untouchable. Mark Dever, a, a historian and a pastor, made the comparison between France and Edom by talking about the Maginot Line. I don't know if we have any history fans here or are familiar with the Maginot Line, but in France, between 1929 and 1938, they built this uh, line of defensive fortifications between them and Germany. There were big guns, lots of concrete, air-conditioned living areas, which was unheard of at the time, underground railways, and more. And when Germany started to be built up under Hitler, France thought, we're good. We can't be touched. We've got the Maginot Line. Well, Germany thought, we can't go through it. We can't go over it. We might as well go around it. And so that's exactly what they did. They came up through Belgium, and they completely bypassed this impenetrable line, the Maginot Line. Now, Edom 
has this uh, Maginot line. Their metaphorical Maginot line is the mountainous land that they lived. They smugly say, we see in verse 3, who will bring me down to the ground? And so like France in June of 1940, they were in for a rude awakening. Look at verse 4. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares Yahweh. Those are heavy and ominous words. But they're building their hope in all the wrong places. Pride is exposed in what we trust. And so this is a good time for us to pause and ask, what are the Maginot lines in your own life? What is the cleft of rock, the cut of rock that you hide yourself in? Where is your security anchored this morning? This is what Edom is demonstrating for us. Pride. Like all people who have gone before us, we all ground our hope in something. Edom trusted in rocks. France trusted in concrete and guns. And before you say, what fools, you need to do an audit of yourself and say, what am I grounding my hope in today? Where do I think I'm untouchable? Where is your safety and security found? We could look at all the normal culprits. We can ask, is it money? Is it material possessions? What are the things that if you lost them, you would be absolutely crushed? What you would answer to that question exposes where your trust lies. Right, the Maginot line took 10 years to build, and the Germans walked around it in a couple of weeks. You could spend your entire life building your own little empire and have it fall apart in an instant. Now, it might not be only material. What about your identity? What if all of a sudden you didn't have your career? What if all of a sudden you, uh, your reputation was just dissolved right in front of you? These aren't fun questions to ask because they expose our pride. They expose our self-sufficiency. But they are the grim realities of what Edom is coming face to face with. They are confronted with the perils of pride. And through their vantage point, they're secure. Remember here, they don't know their folly. They don't see the harm. They feel like they are safe. But the fact is that apart from God, they are building on a foundation that cannot hold. They are building their house, to use the biblical metaphor, on sand. They're not on solid, rocky ground. And they foolishly ask in verse 3 in their own hearts, who will bring me down? And God, the sovereign Lord, says in verse 4, I will bring you down. And so you might be sitting here comfortable thinking, I'm not saying that. But look, it's Edom. It's saying in their hearts. If you look at what you trust most, what does that expose in your own life? We see that Edom's futility is exposed not just in what they trust, but also whom they trust. And spoiler alert, it is not God. See, pride is exposed in whom they trust. Look with me at verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Edom wasn't only confident in their geography, right, and the safety that it afforded. They, they had friends. They had allies. They made peace with those around them. But again, we see that the 
pride that they have is exposed, not just in what they trust, but who they're trusting in most deeply. Those who they were relying on as allies are the ones who eventually come in and take them out. So this was a different kind of Maginot line. They were grounding their hope in relationships, and we can do the exact same thing. Our pride is exposed when we look at who we trust in most deeply. And this is exposing that, that the same folly of pride from a different angle. You look at American currency. What does it say on it? It says, in God we trust. But can we really say that that's true of this nation to ourselves? And so like them, we could say till the cows come home, it is in God we trust. But if our lives demonstrate a different reality, if, if, if that's not the case in our own lives, do we really trust him? Is he our, our, our deepest security? Consider prayer. We've talked about this before. Our, our prayerlessness proclaims our pride. Our lack of prayer declares loud and proud that we are self-sufficient. We can take care of it ourselves. We don't only fall into this as individuals. This needs to be reality as a church. We can fall into being prayerless. We fall into the trap of thinking programs or practices or potlucks are our answer. But they can't accomplish anything of eternal value. We neglect prayer. We neglect to trust God. We see this ever since sin entered the world, right? Go back and read Genesis 3 this afternoon and look for the pride that is exposed. As Eve wanted to take this fruit that was appealing to her eyes and, and she desired the knowledge that would come with it. The core of all sin is pride. Think of any sin. It's not rhetorical. Someone name a sin. Stealing. That's a good one. Right? Well, it's not a good one, for the record. Uh, but stealing, it exposes our, our pride. I want that. I need that. I deserve that. Right? You could look at any sin and boil it back. If you trace it back, you can see that the core of it is pride. Because we think too highly of ourselves, we do say, I deserve this. I earned this. It's all about me. And the thing is, this isn't even like a fringe opinion. This is what we're getting bombarded with from the world around us. We get message like, you do you. Believe in yourself. We praise self-made people. We endorse this message that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Our pride exposes that we trust in things and people more than God. Pride is absolutely disastrous. It is the root of all of our sin, yet we make so little of it. We get complacent with it. We think of pride and we just think, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, it happens so often. Of course, that's just it's par for the course. But the pride that we excuse so often is the danger that we fail to see. We get comfortable with our pride. We get complacent with it. We excuse it, and we're absolutely primed to think little of it. It's like using a table saw. Anyone who uses power tools knows that familiarity breeds complacency, and complacency turns to disaster quickly. The majority of table saw injuries are not from a person who's never used one before. The first time you ever use a table saw, you are, your hands are miles away from that blade. But as you get comfortable, you get a lot more complacent. You get a lot more, you just let it go. And those are the people that get hurt, right? Because you forget at some point that what a table saw is essentially is a bunch of razor-sharp knives attached to a motor spinning at thousands of revolutions per minute and just hungry for fingers. That's, that's what a table saw is. 
And you forget that because you get complacent. You get comfortable. And when you get complacent, uh, your fingers get intimate with those spinning knives. And you can ask the tip of my right pinky uh, if that's true. And pride is the same. We get complacent with it. It becomes such a normal thing in our lives that we forget to see the harm. Except the consequences of pride and even a table saw accident are in completely different realms. Pride is infinitely more damaging. And we are prone to doubt that simply because we have such a low view of sin. Because even on the scale of sin, somehow we have made pride the thing that's easiest to confess. You've probably heard it. Maybe you've been the one that says it. Right? If you're confessing sin to one another, you say, ah, you know, I've really been struggling with pride. I know I've said that. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But we, we say it so frequently, we kind of use it as the, the catch-all because it feels like it is, there's no consequence. It feels like it is the victimless crime. Except that's not true at all. We can think that we're good at com- confessing how we're prideful, but look how God confronts pride. We need to wake up to the perils of pride. And figure out what and who we trust in. Because when we let pride rule, it really is a spiral. Look at the way pride is exposed in Edom there. You see that pride is exposed in the way that they treat others. Look with me at verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. Now again, this isn't talking about Jacob and Esau anymore. Jacob and Esau have been dead for a long time. He's addressing the nation of Edom here, who's, who is opposing, they're opposing God's people. And this is exposing their pride. And the description from verses 11 to 14 seems to set the historical context of this book. But in 586 BC, Jerusalem fell. The Babylonians moved in. They took control exiling God's people. And this wasn't a gentle, smooth, like, hey, can we hang out here? This was like a a major, tragic, horrific event. And what did the Edomites do? Right, maybe we kind of breezed past this as we went through, but what does it say they do? It says, first they stand aloof in verse 11, right? They they were distant. Ah, it's not my problem. So first they were standing aloof. Then they boasted and rejoiced over the fall of their national brother, See that in verse 12. And then they gloat and they loot their own neighbors in the day of their destruction. The day that they needed help the most, they they gloated, they rejoiced, they boasted, they looted. You see that in verse 13. We see that these these circumstances, of of course, are different than the circumstances that we face today living in Kitchener-Waterloo. But these truths expose our pride again. How often do we gloat, boast, rejoice or stand aloof when we see the calamity of others. We stand aloof when we pass by the homeless in our cities. We stand aloof when we look at the news and see societies just crumbling and we don't do anything about it. We boast and we rejoice when the market crashes, thinking, oh, now's a good time, I can make an investment and get a quick buck, even though we forget that the rising unemployment and poverty that is sparked is horrific for people. Kids, you know the feeling. You celebrate when your sibling gets in trouble, when you know you should have been a part of it. That's pride. Adults, you know this feeling. You gloat as you drive by someone else who gets pulled over, all the while you live under your own self-generated law of 15 over. It's pride. It's 
pride. The way we treat other people exposes our pride. And we see this graphically exposed in Edom. Verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. The way Obadiah writes this, it's like he's an eyewitness to these events. he's, He's talking about how horrible this is. Remember, these are real historical events with real people. Men, women, children, desperate, fleeing for their lives from a burning city only to be met at the crossroads by Edom who cut them down, who capture them and return them back to the enemy. The things we trust in, the people we trust in, and the way that we treat other people exposes the, the sick sin of pride. Just like Edom. And we see that this book is not simply just a condemnation of Edom, like a historical account of like, man, Edom, bunch of jerks, right? That's not what it's about. Look at verse 15. It says, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Again, this is not a condemnation of one nation for one, you know, bad week when the Babylonians moved in. This is a condemnation of pride. Edom is serving as a type or an example to all nations and to us today of the judgment that is deserved for our pride and our sin. And all of this paints this clear picture for us that isn't a fun picture to think about when we know the pride in our own hearts, but we see that the opposite of trusting in God is pride. And so our final point this morning is that there is a better path than pride, and that is trusting in a God who saves. We can do it our way, or we can do it God's way. And so friends, as we think about these sins that can universally be boiled down to pride, they hold over us a debt that we could never afford to pay. Each of us, Every single person in this room has sinned against God. God is perfect, and our sin separates us from his perfection. This uh, day of the Lord that we see in verse 15 is a day when all nations, all people will stand under judgment, and our deeds shall return on our own heads. That is a terrifying prospect. Because as much as I want to say, as I look at my own life, that on a scale from good to bad, I might just tip the scales to be good enough. Well, it's not the way it works. First of all, because that's, that's not true. It's my pride speaking. And second of all, any sin, all sin separates us from God. He is perfect and holy, and we are not. So each time we sin, we say in our hearts with Edom, who will bring me down to the ground? Who will bring me down to the ground? And the bad news is that the Bible is clear. That if we build on that kind of foundation, any foundation other than God, we will be brought down. God opposes the proud. But hear me, friends. The Bible is also explicitly clear that that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. God not only opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so what does that mean? And where are we seeing that in our passage? Well, the proclamation is that people will pay for their sin. But somehow, somehow in verse 17, there's there's a glimmer of hope. There's a hope that some will escape. That their possessions will return to them. 
that we see that the exiles of these people will possess this land that was promised to them. Uh, this list of locations we see draw a rough circle around Jerusalem, around uh, the, the land that was promised to God's people. And so we see that there's this glimmer of, of national hope for these people. And there's a promise that, that goes so much bigger in verse 21. It says, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. There is a promised and yet to be realized hope at the end of Obadiah. Not even the wickedness of the nations can overthrow God's kingdom. And how is this all realized? From our vantage point today as we read Obadiah, what's, what's the hope here? Well, it's all fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. When he came proclaiming the good news of salvation, at the beginning of, of Mark's gospel, accounts Jesus' own words here. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The hope for God's people in Obadiah's day was these promises that God had made, these covenants that God had made, promises that we now know perfectly fulfilled in the new covenant, new promise, and that is Jesus. He ushered this in with his life, death, and resurrection, that Jesus, him, the perfect son of God, came and lived a life that contained no hint of pride. He never sinned. All of our sin we can trace back to pride. Jesus never was proud in this way. Jesus never sinned, but he died. He paid the penalty for sin for all who would trust in him for salvation. And what, is, what does this mean for us? What is, what is the, the news there? Well, it means that Jesus took our place. It means that the punishment that should fall on our heads that we read about in verse 15 fell on Jesus instead of you. It means the cup of God's wrath that we should be drinking, that we read in verse 16, fell on Jesus, or was drunk by Jesus. We see in verse 17 this glimmer of hope, this glimmer of escape, the, the inheritance of, of what it would mean to be in right standing with God really belongs to Jesus alone, the only one who is ever perfect. Yet he says, I'll take your place, and you can take mine. That's the hope of the gospel. And this is what it means to be a Christian. You could go your whole life saying that you believe this, but all the while living a life that proclaims along with the Edomites that no one can bring you down. And so to believe in Jesus is to believe in Jesus. To trust in Jesus is to trust in Jesus. To be a Christian is to, by definition, be a Christ follower. It means to follow him. It means to give up trusting in things. It means to give up trusting in people and to come humbly to Christ, knowing that you don't bring anything to the salvation equation other than your sin and desperation. And this is the best news in the world. That Jesus welcomes you with open arms. God's justice against sin is real and it's heavy. Edom is no more. We don't eat at Edomite restaurants. Right? Edom does not enter into the Olympics. Edom is no more. God's promises came true. And if we position ourselves against God, we can pridefully deny that nothing can bring us down. But God will humble the proud. But for those who trust in Christ, you can be assured that your sin cannot overshadow God's mercy. Your sin cannot overshadow God's mercy. God's mercy, this gift of 
eternal life, this hope that we can have with peace restored between us and God is offered to everyone. And we have hope because Jesus, although he drank that cup of wrath, although our sins fell on him, he did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. He demonstrated that God's just wrath against sin had been satisfied, that death had been defeated. He did what we could never do so that we impossibly could stand in a place that we never belonged. And that's the hope of the gospel. And this offer is, is open to everyone. If you are here this morning and you are trusting in anything but Jesus, I invite you to turn from the perils of pride and trust in Jesus today. Jesus is the only name that saves. It's the only foundation we can build on. And for us as a church, let's not fall into this trap of building on anything other than the foundation of the gospel. If we do, we are absolutely doomed to fail. Doomed to fail. Lord willing, next week we'll look at Psalm 20. We'll continue on our journey, plodding through the Psalms. And providentially, this is where we landed. We find this verse. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I don't imagine many of you are at risk of trusting in horses and chariots this morning. But we easily build on the wrong thing. Our pride is exposed in what we trust. Our pride is exposed in whom we trust. Our pride is exposed in how we treat others. But I can assure you, Heritage Grace Church, there is a better way. It's trusting in a God who saves God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. How do we flee from the pride that we are so prone to, and how do we grow in humility? That's the question we've got to be left with. That's the now what. Right? We talked about what, so what, now what. How do we grow in humility? I can assure you it's not simply by working hard or being the best at being humble. Sounds a lot like pride. So how do we grow here? How do you try to get better at being humble? That's, it's like the paradox, right? Well, we can grow in humility by marveling at the greatness of God. The more we look at him and his amazing mercy that he has shown us in Christ, the more we can understand who he is. And the more we understand who he is, the more we understand who we are. And the more that we feel that tension and understand our, how prone we are to pride and how good God is that, that can only do one thing and that is humble us in the best way possible. We'll grow in being sanctified into to a, a place where we can start to turn away from saying in our heart, who will bring me down to the ground? We need to consider who God is. We need to consider our sin. And we can rest in the confidence that it's not who, God who will bring us down to the ground if we rest and trust in Christ. It's through Christ that God holds us up. Let's pray. Lord God, we are amazed that you look at us and are not disgusted with us. God, as prideful as we are, we thank you that you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Help us to grow in humility and help us to do that by looking 
to you. Help us not to trust in things. Help us not to trust in people. Help us not to have our pride change the way that we treat others. God, transform us from the inside out as we look to you. We see there is a better way, that you've made a way to save us. Thank you for the message of Obadiah. Thank you for this time that we can look to your word and feel the weight of the pride we are so prone to. But we consider the even greater, amazing truth that Jesus died to take our place. As we share in the Lord's Supper, God, help us to see the beauty of the gospel in a new and fresh way today. In Jesus' name, amen.